You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 158. On today's show, we talk about threaded spines in Peru, decapitated Roman burials, and ancient Egyptian notepads. Let's dig a little deeper into the tablets of ancient Egypt. (laughs) Welcome to the show, everybody. How's it going? Pretty good. Yeah, we are sitting in front of the... I guess the Pacific Ocean, but it's really more the Gulf of California and where the Pacific Ocean meets, Mm -hmm. halfway between Cabo San Lucas and Cabo San Jose, Mexico. Yeah. Just taking a little vacation, a little week to get away. It's been nice. Yeah. It's pretty cool down here. I want to do a lot more exploration on the Baja Peninsula someday. The Mm -hmm. California Rock Art Foundation is doing some pretty cool expeditions to some rock art sites in like borough access only areas. It's crazy. (laughs) Not sure how I feel about borough access only, but we'll see. Yeah. (laughs) Go check out the rock art podcast at arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. They've had Actually, a number of episodes talking to different people from the tour operator to uh, Ryan Gerstner, who is a representative from the California Rock Art Foundation, to, you know, any number of other people talking about not just these trips and doing them, but the actual rock art down there that you could see. Pretty cool stuff. Yeah, definitely. All right. So since we're in basically a hotel room, I just want to say you may hear some stuff, but we bring good mics with us every time. So you may not. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully it's pretty good. Could yeah. be a little echoey. Maybe that'd be the only thing. Probably. I know the ocean is pretty angry right outside our door. Yeah. <laughs> the waves are enormous. Yeah. They like won't even let you swim here because yeah. the waves and the undertow can be so bad. And I was kind of disappointed in that because we've got this like beautiful sandy beach right in front of us. And mm-hmm. Like literally a guy will come chase you down with a whistle and blow it at you if you even go close to getting in the water. <laughs> right. You know who else has a hard time swimming? <laughs> Somebody with a reed up their spine. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a article in The Guardian and it we have actually a few links to this article from mm-hmm. different places. But this particular one caught our eye and it says uh, and it's called Native Peruvians Threaded Corpses Spines Onto Sticks study suggests Mm -hmm. what's this all about yeah so basically 192 spines were found to have been threaded onto like a reed or stick type of material after they were decomposed Mm. at some point and this is in peru it's in the chincha i'm gonna go with chincha Mm -hmm. they were found in the chincha valley of peru which is kind of like southeast of lima and the chincha people were absorbed into the Incan Empire somewhere around 1400-ish. Mm-hmm. And like they were really a flourishing group or population. Because the Inca, Incan people had sort of a... Almost like a Roman view of 
of absorbing people and cultures, they'd bring them in and then just sort of let them do their thing. Yeah. <laughs> so they were still like maintaining their identity as the people from the, the Chincha Valley. And then, of course, as happened to all of Peru and all of South America, <laughs> yeah. the Spanish showed up. So the population really drastically d- decreased from 1533 to 1583. And it went from like 30,000 people to, I mean, a little less than a thousand, which is a crazy drop in just 50 years. So they definitely, I mean, they were probably hit by disease, by war, by fighting, Mm -hmm. by all of the stuff that, that happened when a really strong force showed up like the Spanish did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the article goes into their burial practices, which leads to what we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. And these people traditionally buried their dead in uh, family or group tombs and would re- revisit the remains often. Yeah. I think it was pretty common to like allow remains to decompose mm-hmm. and then uh, redisplay them. I don't, maybe display is not the right word, but like change their arrangement, rearrange them in some way to suit whatever their cultural practices were. Yeah. It didn't seem like, I mean, today we wouldn't go, you know, dig up grandpa and, you know, change his clothes. Right. right. But it sounds like they did. Yeah. Because they would revisit the the graves. They weren't necessarily buried. They're in tombs. Yeah. And they could just be like laid out right there. And you know that the person that you put there a year ago, which is now just bones, was grandma. Right. It says they sometimes rewrapped them in textiles or even added additional grave goods. Yeah. So it sounds pretty crazy to us, but it was just like life for them. Yeah. I think it's pretty common in a lot of these populations to have ongoing postmortem cultural practices mm-hmm. that they would do of various sorts. But in this case, they, the archaeologists suspect that the tombs actually were looted by the Spanish, who, of course, were looking for silver and gold. Mm -hmm. They looted as much silver and gold as they could out of the New World to send back to the crown. So they suspect that the tombs were looted. The rich grave goods were taken. And then the next time these people visited the tombs and saw what the looters had done, what the destruction looked like to their revered ancestors... That one of the things they might have done is threaded those spines because spines are really easy to see. They're very the the shape of the vertebrae are they're small. They're smaller up at the top and they get much larger at the bottom. Like even just arranging them by size, you can probably put them back to order pretty easily. Mm -hmm. And with that hole in the middle for your nerve column to go through, it's really easy to like thread them onto something in order to maintain the arrangement, right? So there's some conjecture that maybe they were threading the spines back on the reeds as like a way to put their ancestors back together. It's like a respect thing or a bringing back, you know, the reverence to the people that had passed away. Because maybe the thought is they were scattered when, you know, Spanish or whoever were looking for, you know, jewels and gold and silver and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, that's really weird to me because it wouldn't take long, especially if you're... Well, after the person dies, it wouldn't take long for, you know, decomposition to happen. And then, you know, at some point, the bones are all dried out and all the organic material is gone except for the bones. And if they touch them at all, they're going to get disarticulated and out of order because Mm -hmm. the things that hold bones in place go away. Mm -hmm. So... I'm kind of wondering, like, at some point, 
you know, they, it is conjecture as to they did this to sort of put their ancestors back together. But I'm also like, maybe they just did it after their ancestors decomposed anyway yeah. and it had nothing to do with the Spanish. Just to like keep them together. Yeah. I, I think that part of the reason why they are coming up with this hypothesis is because the burials that are like this tend to date to like the hundred years before the Spanish got there and the hundred years after. So it's like yeah. a pretty tight, like 200 year time frame that coincides with the Spanish arrival perfectly. However, as we know, as scientists, correlation does not always equal causation. And there mm-hmm. could have been something else going on in this group of people that made them want to thread their the spines onto sticks in order to keep their people together. Yeah, and the other thought behind this being done in response to looting and destruction is that they were often put together out of order, like the spinal, oh, the vertebrae. Right. So they were picking them <laughs> yeah. up off the floor and putting them back just together, like but, not, back on. but not perfectly. Yeah, yeah. But I'm like, did they just not care? And it was like the representation of their ancestor that mattered or they really couldn't see that they kind of goes from big to little. Like yeah. you would see that if you saw the dead bodies in your life, yeah. like what order they go in. And I'm just wondering what, what the purpose would be to, to put to not concerning yourself with how they go back on. That's very strange. Well, I get that though, because although they do grade in size, they get larger as you go down the spine, but it can be kind of hard to tell, especially up in the smaller ones oh, sure. at the top, like which one is in which order. Like but I got the impression they were wildly out of order. Yeah. Because you could just like tell. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe. I don't know. What what to a bioarchaeologist is wildly out of order. <laughs> it's true. Is <laughs> maybe not necessarily wildly out of order to a person who just sees grandma's bones in a heap on the floor and is yeah. just trying to put them back together as best as possible now the picture that is uh, accompanies this article shows the large vertebrae up by the neck and the small ones that they, they look size graded but yeah. they're backwards completely it's almost like it was like like they mm-hmm. had already excavated and, and done some stuff here and somebody put it back just like in the wrong orientation almost it's possible that's what it looks like yeah to me. it's so hard to say with stuff that happens after the body was buried because when something is in situ yeah. And you have the full shape of the skeleton. It's so easy to see where the body was placed when it was mm-hmm. put into the grave or the tomb or whatever it is. Yeah. But after, when it gets touched afterwards, like it's just so hard to say who did it and what their intentions were at that point. Right. So when I worked in Peru, I did have the opportunity to work on a cemetery. It was still in a desert environment, but it was in like the northern coastal area. And... I will say that like when you're working on in C2 bodies as opposed to not in C2 bodies or bodies that have been disturbed after they were placed there, it's like a totally different thing. So it is so interesting here that they found them like this, mm-hmm. indicating that somebody touched them. And I just I wish there was more detail about the context, yeah. like like were they actually buried under soil and they dug them up and when they dug them up, they still had the reed through the middle or you know, I wish there was more details about what they actually looked like when they were excavating them just to give a better idea where they lined up in a row. And like there was yeah. a, there were like lines of the, you know, I, I would love to get more information about that. I think literally every archaeologist on the planet has said, I wish there was more detail about the context. I know. It's like the, what we do. I know. It's like the news articles never quite give you as much information as yeah. you want as an archaeologist. It might be enough for like the general public, but not, right. not for archaeologists. So there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, these guys may have had their spines rearranged, but at least they still had their heads about them. (laughs) 
unlike <laughs> a group of Romans found in southern England. That's right. It's more fantastic HS2 finds from the UK. Back in a minute. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 158. And as we mentioned, heads are going to roll in this one. Oh, wait. They already did roll. They did. Indeed. Yes. So what did they find on HS2? High Speed Rail 2. I know. HS2 again. That's right. And we have talked about this thing multiple times now on multiple episodes. And we're probably not done. And we're probably not done because they keep finding cool stuff. And they also have a really great like marketing representative or something because they're definitely getting a lot of play every time they discover yeah. something cool. So it's really great that they're finding cool things and they keep you know, sharing them with the world. Um, but it does seem like we keep encountering them like every week. <laughs> <laughs> so this time there were approximately 40 decapitated Roman skeletons found in a cemetery in Southern England. And this cemetery is located in Buckinghamshire and it is the biggest Roman cemetery that has been discovered in this area. How do they keep all the shires like I know. sorted? <laughs> Everything's been found in a shower of some sort. I know. And like, actually, like a quick note about the names. And we've talked about it before. And we'll try not to be like total American jerks about it. Yeah. But I struggle to keep the names of the different places separate because they all like kind of seem the same. And I think that this cemetery is associated with the same market town that we talked about a few episodes back. Mm -hmm. It wasn't obvious on their website. And I couldn't find that specifically but i believe it's the same area that we're talking about these names don't sound familiar to me though buckinghamshire and village of fleet marston yeah like, I don't, we haven't talked about that yet but yeah yeah i don't really know i mean it's it's possible that these were in like the same i don't know if they call them counties there but what we would call like a county or a region yeah you know because it was roman presence and you know so on and so forth but yeah. uh anyway it- Regarding that, we have talked about when I said, you know, we haven't sound familiar. We have talked about these a number of times as as regular listeners to the show will know. So listen to some of our past episodes to find out what they found. Yeah, definitely. And I'm sure our future episodes. Probably. Listening to this in the future. (laughs) So there are 425 burials total. 40 of them were decapitated. And the thought is that those decapitated bodies were probably from criminals. And it was a decapitation style punishments Mm -hmm. so like dang don't mess with romans that's right because they're gonna (laughs) decapitate you if you do something wrong the uh image here that's associated with the cnn article that we're actually talking about here and there's i think there's a couple others that we're linking to but (laughs) the image is again you got to look at this as though 
from an archaeologist's eye because there's a hole. It looks like a grave Mm -hmm. and there is a skeleton lying in it. And then there is the head of the skeleton is like between the ankles of the uh, deceased person. Like they dumped the body in and then put the the head between the legs. Down at the feet, like as far away from the head as they possibly could. Now, do you think that that was like a like an additional punishment thing, like to put your head at your feet and not up like a where your head punishment. should be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like some kind of spiritual thing is. I mean, it's the Romans. I'm kind of surprised they didn't put it like under their ass. <laughs> like you're, you're going to live the rest of your life with the head up your ass. Your head up your ass. <laughs> but I'm, I'm saying, look at this picture though, because this is clearly staged this. Yeah. There's, there's articulated and, and clearly defined ribs and pelvis and all the other bones. And this was either excavated and pulled out as it was excavated and then placed back in here for a photo shoot. Or, I mean, archaeologists are pretty good at digging around these things and then, you know, leaving it in situ, we call it, uh, or in place. But I just have to imagine that this was somewhat staged for a photo shoot. Archaeological excavations are not this clean and neat. Yeah. I mean, they can be, but I'm, I'm just looking at... The ribs specifically that are just like all on top of each other. And there's no way you could like excavate even with the finest brushes and and wooden tools and things like that under and around them in order to have them remain in place without some sort of external supports. So it's um Yeah, but the skull, it's a little bit of theater, I think. The skull does fine. look like it is kind of at least the back part of it is slightly buried because that it could be the shape of the skull is not big enough to have yeah. been pulled out completely and then put back in so could be. i'm not trying to slight anybody that's done this i'm just saying you know sometimes what you see in the media is not representational of like actual work mm-hmm. but sometimes it's set up so we can tell a story and we can tell it well yeah it can definitely happen yeah. and i would love to to learn about like what the the vertebrae look like up at the top where the head was you know disconnected from the body mm-hmm. <laughs> just to see like does it look like it was a, a sword beheading or how many chops or yeah like like was it really like you should be able to tell that you should be able to see the marks on the on the bones that say how the head was disconnected from the skeleton and if it happened pre or post-mortem so i mean it'd be a pretty macabre study but if you could line up all these necks and, and just start looking at them I bet you could tell where they had to sharpen the axe. Oh, God. Well, <laughs> you're assuming they all happened at the same time. No, I'm, I'm assuming they... Well, you're These, right. There could be many, many years separating yeah, these burials. And there probably right. were. Yeah, I just assumed it was like war criminals or something for some reason. Oh, yeah. So. I didn't get that impression. And even in ancient Rome, I can't imagine. They were executing groups of people daily. I mean, I don't maybe. know. <laughs> yeah. So this was found uh, in the local village of Fleet Marston, as we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And there were also the remains of uh, an entire Roman village, including more than 1,200 coins, gaming dice, bells, spoons, pins, brooches, all the things you need to live mm-hmm. uh, as a sophisticated Roman. Yeah. And this is why I think it might be that same village we already talked about, because those same things were found there. But like they could like just be common to like lots of Roman. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. So that's our bad for not being more prepared. But I swear yeah. I looked and I couldn't find confirmation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interesting that this was likely used as more of a stopover spot for Romans going to the Roman town of Alchester, mm-hmm. which means it was, I mean, you can't get there in like one day. They didn't have HS2 yet. Right. So yeah, <laughs> they had HS0, which yes. was much slower. Yeah. HS yeah. horse. Yeah. Yeah. Horse, horse speed zero. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And uh, it was interesting that they would have things like this, but I don't understand why something like this wouldn't just turn into a full-fledged town that says to the something to the Roman 
bureaucracy and the the, mechan- the mechanics of the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, well, this will not be a town. We're going to declare that. It's just going to be like <laughs> a stopover and you're not going to live here. Yeah. But some people had to live there to support the people stopping over. They did. I think it's just like that natural way that cities develop on a mm-hmm. on a pathway you know some of them get big and some don't and yeah. it might be because there's multiple intersection points at one of them so therefore more people there and it just gets bigger and grows bigger or whatever but i mean like look at route 66 right going through the united states mm-hmm. you know any city that was on the the road got super big and was yeah. you know a bustling town and then route 66 moved the interstate moved to where it is now which is along highway 40 or interstate and 40 all and all those towns are dead anyone yeah. that's not on on interstate 40 anymore dead gone yeah. done. and that's modern times so yeah yeah now that happens the size of the cemetery that they found indicates it may have been far larger and more significant site than originally thought, which I'm not sure what that comment means. Maybe they always knew there was a cemetery here, but now that they're allowed to excavate, they're like, oh, this looks bigger than we thought. Yeah, I think it just means that the town itself was bigger than they originally thought, too. So most of the burials in this cemetery were entombed, which is like a the full body is buried. And that's pretty common for this time period and the place you see a lot of cremations later on but at this time it was more of an entombing thing which is probably why we're getting these full bodies with the decapitated heads separated from the Mm -hmm. body we don't usually see that when it's more of a cremation focused cemetery yeah yeah the article mentions that this helps sort of fill the roman occupation map like one more pin showing where they were and i'm imagining it's like one of those pins at a popular touristy restaurant that is just <laughs> full of pins because the yeah. ones were everywhere. Yeah, but yeah. Like not necessarily in the UK, though, because they weren't there for that long. Yeah, but they were everywhere. And they kind of pulled out pretty quick, too. So the Roman yeah. occupation of the UK was is a very interesting time period, I think. I know, but they were everywhere. Okay. Just like everywhere. Okay. <laughs> sure. Yeah. That sounds good. You know what they needed? What? They needed someone to track their movements, and they probably could have used tablets for that. We talk about tablets a lot in the Architect podcast, but you know who talked about tablets first? The ancient Egyptians. The Egyptians. That's right. So let's talk about their first tablets that they used, and they weren't designed by Apple. Back in a minute. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks then there are drinks from mcdonald's mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for a dollar 49 perfect with our classic fries price and participation may vary cannot be combined with any other offer Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. you've worked hard for what you have your money your assets your 401k and home isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 158. This is our third and final segment, and we are talking about Egyptian notepads. I know. I'm so excited about this one. I know. It is so cool. I never even thought about this at all, but the gist of this story is that there are so many broken pots (laughs) 
in ancient in ancient Egypt that they would use the bigger shirts to to write on to yeah. take lists to teach their children to do all kinds of like random notepad type of things on it's basically scratch paper it's basically scratch paper yeah but they're pots that are broken it's like under the printer you've got all the unused things that were accidentally printed (laughs) like like back in the day when you print out your map quest instructions and there were 48 pages that just had a link on the bottom yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah, it's exactly like that that's it's just so funny yeah they catalog more than 18,000 pieces of inscribed pottery and, and looking at some of the pictures here. I mean, they really just they really did use some sort of ink to basically yeah. just draw on these. Now, this says yeah. inscribed, which would indicate some sort of scratching. But the the picture shows what what's well, basically like an ink inscribed as in there are words. There. Oh, inscriptions. Yeah. Like, like I inscriptions. See, I yeah, see. yeah. I was so, thinking inscribed in a different way. But I do think that they are all done with ink of some sort. Mm-hmm. I didn't see any pictures of ones that were like carved in. Although I suppose there could be. I mean, there's no reason why they couldn't. Although I guess fired pot- pottery might be kind of hard to carve into as well. So I don't I know. know. It was possible. Depends but, on what you have. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So. So the shards of inked pottery are known as ostraca. Ostraca. Such a cool word. (laughs) Yeah. And they would use the bits of broken pottery, like we said, basically because they were plentiful and cheap. But we got to back up here for a second because this article really calls them shards of pottery. They do. Oh, they do. Yeah. Did I say shards? You said shards, but that's oh, because the article says shards. It did. Yeah, I copied yeah. it from the article. They're that's actually, annoying. They're actually shards, which yeah. means the author of this article might just be playing Wordle like everyone else is. Okay. Because so, shard was a Wordle word. It was. <laughs> okay. So let me give a disclaimer about this article. They seem to have been the type of... It's the type of article where somebody like briefly scanned a couple Wikipedia articles and like threw in some some words and some knowledge, I think. Hey, I think you're describing this podcast. <laughs> hey, we're a little better than that. But yeah, I there are some definitely some like contradictory things in the article, but I felt like it didn't take away from the fact that they did find eighteen thousand pieces of mm-hmm. notepad pottery. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought that was really cool. Nice. Yeah. So I'm not going to forgive them for using the word shard instead, but from reading the article, I think I understand why it happened because they didn't really truly have an in-depth understanding of the archaeology itself. I'm willing to bet they read whatever the primary source was that they got this from and it said shard, but probably autocorrected to shard and whatever they were Very writing Very possible. And they didn't even notice. Actually, because I did, I wrote that sentence. I didn't just copy that in and I think that it corrected me from shard to shard without me yeah, realizing it. It probably. definitely happens. Shard's not a word that most spell checkers or people know. No, I don't think yeah. so. No. So. so anyway, these broken bits of pottery were, there's a lot of them. They're all around. So they're cheap and free usually and much more accessible than papyrus would have been for actually doing real writing. And yeah. if you're practicing or writing a quick list or something, like why would you waste a, a precious piece piece of papyrus on that it totally makes sense that they would do this yeah and papyrus is a is a paper made out of a, a plant like a reed like plant. yeah yeah it's not just a font used at the hallmark store <laughs> it's uh <laughs> says the guy who like only wrote in papyrus back in 2012 i mean papyrus was pretty hot for a while <laughs> it's all helvetica new now baby uh-huh. <laughs> all right these eighteen thousand. Shards were found in the long lost city of Athrobis in central Egypt. 
And can we just like take a minute to talk about what the words long lost even mean? Yeah. <laughs> I copied that straight out of the article because, again, I'm just like not super impressed with the way this article is written, even though I think the information is pretty cool. But long lost, like who is that long lost to? Is it lost to foreigners or white people or non-locals? Or well, was it actually buried and no one really truly knew it was there? Now, cities in Egypt... I mean, I don't know anything about this one, but cities in Egypt can get lost by sandstorms relatively easily. And and long lost would mean it would imply that, yeah, the city's gone. It's been wiped off the face of the earth because people either left there and then it was mm-hmm. buried. But it's been written about. So it's known about. And we yeah. just don't know where it's at. Yeah. Yeah. And chances are the locals have some idea of what is there yeah. because there's stories and like bits of structure might stick out here and there. So Well, and if there's 18,000 shirts of shirts of pottery, I mean, it means another 20 or 40,000 yeah. if you're it out. And, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So I, I take umbrage with that wording. I'm sure it wasn't mm-hmm. truly lost. It was just lost to the people who were excavating it or the people who are reporting the story, not yeah. necessarily to the locals and the, the people who live there. Right. So. so this dates to the reign of Ptolemy the Twelfth, who was Cleopatra's dad. And he reigned from uh, about 89 to 59 BCE. And then again, from 55 to 51 BCE. And uh, the break in time there was just because he couldn't wrap his head around why time was going backwards. He's like, <laughs> why the heck did I start in 81 and I ended in 59? Yeah. I got to figure this out. And then he came back and just like finished out another four years. Oh, so special. Yes. Well. And the the shirts that they found seem to have mostly been written by students who were learning to write or doing other like repetitive grammar, mm-hmm. arithmetic, arithmetic type of work. But there are also some detailed shopping lists, recordings of trades, and also copies of literature. Although I feel like the copies of literature might have been students as well. So. Yeah, like taking notes or something. Because how much yeah. could you possibly write on yeah. a shirt of pottery? I don't know. Some of them are pretty big. And the pots in Egypt could be like, you know, yeah, on with. So true. there could be some really, really big shirts for sure. Man, could you imagine carrying those books to school? It's just <laughs> oh like it's like wrapped up bits of pottery. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> well, so part of the reason why they do speculate that it was students is because while they found 18,000 of these inscribed shirts, they aren't all in one spot. However, a large grouping of the Ostraka, they do appear to be in and around and within the remains of a school. And part of the reason that they know this is because there is a basic hieroglyphic alphabet called the bird alphabet. And they found a lot of shirts with the bird alphabet hieroglyphic stuff on it. And what is the bird alphabet? Okay. It sounds really cool. It is. It, it is really cool. Um, this is another thing that I went like research deep diving on and mm-hmm. struggled to find a lot in the 10 minutes that I gave it. <laughs> so, <laughs> Would you call so it a deep dive? please don't crucify me right now. But we um, literally get free margaritas at this resort. So <laughs> I know, right? how much research? <laughs> yeah. No. Um, so each letter is supposedly assigned to a bird whose name began with that letter. And then they would somehow use that association between the bird and the, the sound that the bird was meant to make to communicate more complex ideas. Mm-hmm. And I think that it was a way, it was probably a way to teach them. It's like a very beginning stages teaching of either script or hieroglyphs or whatever they were learning. So, yeah, a lot of these had uh, repetitive writing exercises on the front and yes. back, almost like, you know, I will not punch my friend in the face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? 
uh, wait, what's the Harry Potter one? I must not tell lies. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Except that's yeah. all in one place over and over again. But right, yeah. Right. <laughs> so the most common language on these shirts is demotic, which is a script that was kind of used in a more everyday administrative kind of kind of context in Ptolemy's reign. But there were others, including the hieratic, which was sort of the step up mm-hmm. language of the same time period used by used by like the the religious elite. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And then there's also Coptic, Greek, and Arabic that also mm. appear in various ways and places on the shirts. That just tells you where Egypt was in this whole area that there's four five different languages being I know. represented. <laughs> I know. It's, it's crazy. crazy. Yeah. yeah. So there's in there is evidence of Roman influence in the later shirts because of reference to Roman emperors and gods like there's some mm-hmm. reference to Nero on at least one of them and, and stuff like that. Yeah. The only other large cache of Ostraca has been found in the ancient village of, I don't know how to say this, Deir el Medina. Yeah, that's, that's pretty probably, good. Yeah, yeah, that's all right. All right. In the winter, they called it funky cold Medina. <laughs> um, but anyway, <laughs> uh, that was slightly further down the Nile River. And, now, it was, and it was a long time ago, too. It was in like yeah. 1910 or some sometime in the early part of the 19, 1900s. Yeah. And I don't know what down the Nile River means. It flows north, which is one of the few rivers, few major rivers that does. So does down mean closer to like Cairo, I wonder? I wonder. Further south, I believe. Further south. Is what they were indicating. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, most of those were uh, medicinal. And and medical as well in nature. So they were related specifically like to prescriptions the, to practice yeah it's like to, <laughs> to the practice of medicine and stuff like that take four beetles and call me in the morning. <laughs> which in itself is really cool and i wish yeah. again articles never given you enough information i would mm-hmm. love to have more information about what kind of stuff specifically was on those ostraca but they didn't say yeah it's kind of neat to have this look into daily life of this ancient egyptian town like we see the big pyramids we see the 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 large you know mega structures but Mm -hmm. just seeing kids and and regular people writing down shopping lists and and keeping things down tells us that you know it's really hard to keep stuff in your head and we've been struggling with that for thousands of years so write it down (laughs) it kind of does like make us all the same right yeah a little bit anyway and (laughs) this like look into the daily life of what it was like to to live in Egypt and be an Egyptian, mm-hmm. I think is something you don't normally get because I feel like the the remains that we have of, of Egyptian towns give us a very specific window into the lives of the elite because the only people who knew how to write, generally speaking, or, or who could do the hieroglyphs were mm-hmm. of the elite classes. So, but this is like kind of a lot more daily life. And the other question it brings to mind is like, how many people could read and write yeah. in in ancient Egypt? Right. I wonder if that's like something people have studied because I don't think that like the owner of a whole bunch of slaves and also like a really fancy house is going to write a shopping list. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, he must have had people blow him who did know how to do that stuff. So, yeah, it's just it's really interesting, like how how many people really could communicate through written language right and i'm not sure about this kind of town because i don't know what their big focus was down here but seems like egypt was a little bit more modern so to speak mm-hmm. than a lot of towns at the same time mm-hmm. and a lot of cities a lot of areas countries like egypt is and i just have a feeling that more people would need to be able to read in order to just 
I don't know, follow instructions. Like mm-hmm. maybe they're handed a shirt for the day that says what work site they're supposed to go to and what they're supposed to right. and who they're supposed to meet. Right, right. Totally. You know, if it was that abundant, why limit it to, you know, schoolwork and stuff like that? Yeah. And if these shirts were found grouped in what they think was the remains of a school, just the fact that they had a school at all means that, mm-hmm. you know, some larger chunk of the population was being educated which is another cool thing to think about because it's not all just like let my people go and (laughs) stuff like that you know anyway interesting all right well the margarita's empty time to go get another free one (laughs) is it free though I mean can you really call it free it was free after we paid for it (laughs) right so after that they're all free Uh yeah (laughs) all right well we will be back stateside next week with uh, another episode and just by the way please email us or send us hate mail or love mail uh, depending on what you think but we have been considering going through the four Indiana Jones movies, maybe not like back to back as episodes, but going through them and and kind of talking about some of the things in those movies. We all know they're fiction. That's okay. (laughs) And and there might be some people here going, I'm not listening to yet another archaeology podcast network episode about like a video game or a movie. About fictional things. Yeah. (laughs) However, people of a certain age, myself included, I got into archaeology solely because of Indiana Jones. Yeah. Like the first movie came out when I was like 10 or something. Right. I mean, I made out with one of my first girlfriends during Temple of Doom because who wants to watch that garbage <laughs> piece of trash? And it's not garbage. You know, I'm just saying. But <laughs> it, it was it was incredibly influential. And, you know, what the I don't know where flying came in, probably my grandfather and RC model airplanes and stuff. But when I was a kid, I wanted to either be a pilot, an astronaut or an archaeologist. And the archaeologist was because of Indiana Jones. The astronaut was because of probably Krista McAuliffe and the shuttle mm-hmm. Challenger. NASA. Well, we were in school watching when the Challenger exploded. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was like in third grade and we were in the library. Mm-hmm. But all that stuff. And you can't discount the influence that this movie franchise and that character had on archaeologists. So let's talk about what they got right and what they didn't. Mm-hmm. If you don't want us to do that, let us know. Yeah. <laughs> do tell us. <laughs> yeah. And also, we're planning on doing some fun stuff later on with uh, some anniversary episodes. The Life and Ruins podcast is having a big 100th episode extravaganza. And I'm thinking we might have a 200th. Now, that's like almost a year away. But... <laughs> Still, if you could help us out with a review wherever you find this podcast and you're able to leave a review, I know Spotify doesn't allow that, but like iTunes does, just head over there and leave a review. You know, and yeah. uh, it helps us. It helps people find the show because it ranks differently. And uh, yeah, know, it's all things it you can do. Help yeah. the podcast and follow us on all the socials and stuff too. You're doing a really good job with fun reels and stuff lately yeah. on Instagram, ArcPodNet. That's right. That's right. Yeah, ArcPodNet on Instagram, on Twitter, on TikTok, on Facebook, mm-hmm. all the socials. So yep. find us there, comment there. But please, wherever you find the podcast, go over and rate us and. Tell us what you think and be honest. You can take it. Definitely. All right. See you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, 
DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.